you're listening to FemWonk. I'm your host, Katie Davey, and I'm on a mission to raise the policy conversation around gender and inclusion. Today, we're back for part two of our cabinet briefing. We waited a few extra days just to let the dust settle so we could give a meaningful update rather than a bunch of really quick hot takes right after the fact. Um, As we mentioned in our last episode, we'll be taking a break for a few weeks to rest and reset. So do stay tuned for ways that you can share your feedback with us and for projects that we have in the pipeline. Okay, so... A few stats before we get going, I guess. So there were 36 ministers, including the prime minister, appointed, and half of them were women. A majority of these ministers are from Ontario and Quebec, but that isn't a huge surprise based on where the Liberals won the most seats and, of course, population density. Um, We highlighted a few things to watch for in our previous episode, so I'm going to start by giving some thoughts on those. So... Did the minority situation play any role in this cabinet? I would say yes, but not necessarily in the ways you might think. So there were no MPs from other parties appointed or any senators, which again, that's not at all surprising to us. But we did, however, see some political ministers appointed this time around. Although political ministers are actually quite common both federally and in provincial jurisdictions, um, Trudeau did not appoint any in 2015. That actually got very little coverage in 2015, um, but I think the reason they they made that decision in 2015 was kind of within their broader um, focus on depoliticizing cabinet. Um, A political minister is basically a minister responsible for certain regions. They're typically a senior minister, and they basically look out for all of the political concerns in a region, like appointments and, you know, political or policy priorities relevant to the region. So in this cabinet, there are two notable um, political ministers, including um, Pablo Rodriguez as the Quebec lieutenant and Jim Carr uh, being responsible for the prairies. So it is a bit odd that they didn't appoint political ministers for every region, but I suspect this is a bit of a happy medium for them. As I mentioned, they didn't appoint any in 2015. Um, But this does show that that they are going to be a bit more political in this minority situation and that they're going to keep an eye on how they're doing in certain regions. I don't think that's entirely surprising to me. This leads well into the representation question that we talked about in our last episode as well. There isn't really much to say here, um, other than not much was really done to fill the gaps from my perspective. Um, I think the mandate letters will possibly highlight what's planned to be done here, but um, we'll have to wait and see. And on that note, the mandate letters were not released at the same time as cabinet was um, sworn in. There are some rumors, I guess, that they'll kind of come out as um, as the, the House goes back in on December 5th. So we'll stay tuned and we'll be keeping our eyes peeled to see what each minister and, and what each ministry's mandate will be leading into this new cabinet. Um, I will say as a New Brunswicker on representation, I can't not mention the, the demotion of Jeanette Petipa-Taylor. Um, 
I think it's personally shocking, and that seems to be a broad consensus in New Brunswick. Um, she did a wonderful job as health minister, and she had no public missteps. Uh, she really seemed to be widely respected and a relationship builder from my perspective. Um, and, and other than that, she's a fully bilingual woman outside of Quebec. So I think a lot of people were really shocked to see her not uh, maintain her seat around the cabinet table. Uh, I guess my kind of glass half full look at the situation is that um, for both her and, and Christy Duncan's move to the government house team um, is that in a minority situation, the house team has a really heightened importance um, and will need to take on a larger role. So putting Jeanette Petipa-Taylor as deputy whip shows me that she is respected in cabinet and or rather in caucus and has the ability to foster relationships across the aisle. So you know, fingers crossed for to see how that role plays out. But as I mentioned, it was quite a shock. This kind of leads me to my next take, which is um, that equality does not mean equity. The story of the day really was intended to be Christia Freeland. Um, she was appointed Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, and uh, maintained her responsibility for U.S.-Canada relations and the new NAFTA. I mean, who says that women can't have it all? Am I right? <laughs> um, but when you look at the portfolios, the other portfolios rather, it's hard not to see a pattern. Um, as I mentioned, the cabinet really does signal where the PM's priorities are. And yet there are few ministries as important um, as, you know, finance, justice, foreign affairs, treasury, public safety. These kind of are the, the big the big portfolios, regardless of where the PM's priorities lie. And in this case, all of those five portfolios that I just named um, are now headed by white men. <sighs> Having 50% women around the table is a huge step, but in my opinion, the cabinet actually got less equal um, since 2015, not more. It's really frustrating, to be honest. Um, I guess we'll have to see, again, where the focus really lies through the mandate letters, and, and we'll have to kind of keep our eyes peeled to see what the first really big steps this government takes are to see, you know, what that signaling of priorities is. So I guess I'll kind of end off with a few quick takes, the kind of final quick takes. This episode was intended to be a, a fairly um, quick assessment, but... Um, some things that made me go, like, what? <laughs> um, the Minister of Middle Class Prosperity and Minister of Inclusion and Diversity, two odd portfolios. Um, again, we'll have to wait and see what they actually are and what their mandates are. Uh, some of the things I will say were kind of smart things to do and, and smart takes that I have would be um, Jean-Yves Duclos at Treasury Board. I really like seeing a former social assistance minister in charge of the Treasury. Um, I like a standalone minister of labor. I think this will be important as our kind of conception of work continues to change. Um, Catherine McKenna to infrastructure and communities. I think communities are feeling the impacts of climate change um, at an incredibly high rate. So her critical lens here will be important. Um, I, I like a standalone ministry of digital government. Uh, many people are kind of calling this a demotion for Joyce Murray from, from Treasury Board um, to, to digital government. But 
I'm actually hoping that this signals a stronger focus on bringing our government into the 21st century, um, including, fingers crossed, exploring a digital ID. Um, and finally, I'll just say that I'm really happy to see Maryam Monsef staying at um, Women and Gender Equality. She really, from my perspective, and I think many would agree, has been quite a remarkable minister, and I really look forward to continuing to hear her voice amplified here. Okay. Those are all of my thoughts on the cabinet um, announcement. I hope they were a bit more, I guess, in-depth and thoughtful than than if um, I had have recorded this episode immediately after the announcement. Um, again, I think we really can't say too much um, until we see what the mandate letters look like and really what those priorities are. Um, and, you know, let me know your thoughts. What, what did you think? Was there anything that surprised you? I'd love to hear them, and you can actually send those thoughts over to us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Facebook at Femlock. You can also follow us over there at Femlock. And as I mentioned, we're taking a few weeks break, so we'll see you in a few. Thanks so much. <laughs>